0: Well, come on back and grab your Bible and head over to the 82nd chapter of the book of Psalms. 82nd chapter of the book of Psalms and uh, uh, one that's, I don't know, maybe near and dear to my heart and maybe John Serpa's heart and maybe Anthony Rash's heart. And the reason is is, uh, we're lawyers, and this is a plea for justice, and I believe that the psalmist here, who is Asaph, can you imagine writing this sort of song or poetry? It's a song about judges, the judges of Israel, and by extension, any judge who's set up in the government, and what and how they should judge. Isn't that fascinating? And we're going to see in the middle of this a very short psalm. Why? Why is that important? And he, uh, he says it. Well, that's interesting. Song there. <laughs> so, justice. I want you to know this. It's an attribute of God. Uh, the attributes of God are not just something that God possesses. The attributes are God, if that makes sense. It's not just a quality, although it is a quality, it's, but it's who he is. And if you want to bless yourself, uh, go out on the Internet. I say this all the time. Look up Charles Spurgeon's list, links. To all the different uh, attributes of God and go through them and your heart will be blessed. But let me just give you a quick definition, and you could go on for hours talking about the justice of God. But God's justice is God's fair and impartial treatment of all people. His fair and impartial treatment of all people. John Ross Macduff said the justice of God is His holiness in exercise. His holiness and exercise, fair and impartiality, and able to judge correctly with wisdom and righteousness—it's all tangled up in there, or mixed up in there in a, in a good way. Uh, justice and judgment, Psalm eighty-nine fourteen says, are the habitation of your throne. I mean, He sits in justice and judgment and I want to tell you how wonderful of a doctrine it is for two reasons I'll talk about but there's many more than this is one (laughs) uh, life makes sense when God's the judge to me there's a purpose and a reason to life this is an evaluation now you're not being evaluated on how good of a little girl or little boy you're being no, because the blood of Jesus Christ, we're saved, of course. And yet, God entrusts us as stewards, as ambassadors. And he, we will be judged on what we have done with what we've been given. A bema seat judgment, a crown's judgment. And we've talked about that on several occasions. But life makes sense when God is a judge. And so that's a good thing. But the other thing that I think this doctrine does or this attribute does, is it gives you amazing freedom, justice, judgment. God is the holder of it. God executes it. That means you don't have to go around judging everybody. Wake up now. The Lord's going to do it. Of course, there's important and appropriate judgment that we're to do. If you're a parent... You don't just send your kid over to any person to watch them. No, you evaluate and judge (laughs) because you're a protector and a guardian. But this just takes all the pressure off. There's freedom in God being the judge. You don't have to harbor bitterness and worry about how that person's going to get it and hit or judged or taken down or whatever, found out. You don't have to... uh, Uh, harbor bitterness because God is judge. It's an amazing doctrine. Well, it's a psalm of Asaph, and if you've been traveling with us, you know Asaph is a great musician or choir director during the time of David and Solomon. But the scriptures also say his ministry was prophetic. That's Asaph. And here's what he says about the judges. God stands in the congregation of the mighty, Or the powerful. And so this is the picture now that Asaph is drawing. We're going to find out that the people he's talking about, the powerful ones he's talking about here, are judges. And the picture is is that God is standing in the midst of them. I want you to get that. And he judges among the gods. Now you say, well, wait a minute, gods. Here the word is Elohim, Elohim. It can mean several things, but in Exodus 21 and other places, and I think here, it's talking about human judges. Human judges. You could look it up in Exodus 21.6. Human judges. It can mean other things, but I, I think that's what it means here. He judges among the gods, the human ones. And so there's this sense in which somebody who becomes a judge has power to alter people's lives, right? And so it's a little G here for God's, and yet there's this powerful, important thing that a judge is doing. He's deciding the course of people's lives. You ever been in front of a judge? No fun. Even when you know you haven't done anything wrong, you're still nervous. Anyway, he judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? Here comes God, and he stands in the middle. He's got them around, and it's the picture here in the psalm is that he's speaking out to the ones that are ruling powerful humans and saying, I've got something against you. You're judging in a wrong way. You're not judging according to my character or attribute. It's unjust. Why is it unjust? Here's one clue. Because they show partiality to the wicked, to the powerful, to the popular. In other words, God doesn't show partiality to men based on those things. And God confronts them here. And then uh, the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, pause and think about that. Defend the poor and fatherless. That is important to the Lord. Can you believe that the Lord is giving this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to point out what's important to people who judge? And through and in that, you get to see what God's like. He doesn't show partiality, and yet these judges were. God defends the poor and the fatherless, but apparently these judges weren't. He wants to do justice to the afflicted and needy, and again, these judges were not. He wants to deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Why would that be? Because apparently the prayer, the uh, wicked is praying upon the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the vulnerable. And we still see that in so many ways today. And then it goes, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. There's some debate about which, or who who is they talking about? (laughs) Is they... Are they the judges or the people who are being oppressed? But if you take it to mean they, the judges, do not know, nor do they understand, they walk about in darkness, listen to this. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Here's why God's saying it's important. If judges are so corrupt, then so is society in many ways. And God is saying, I'm establishing these offices so that the vulnerable can be protected. And yet, the opposite has happened in Israel. And of course, you know it, right? I mean, come on. Let's just be frank here. I mean, there are some wonderful court-appointed criminal attorneys, but most of the sharp skilled, powerful attorneys who work in criminal law cost a lot of money and are only available to the rich and powerful. And here God's saying that's not the purpose of this. The purpose is that the legal system would protect the vulnerable. And then he goes on and he says, I said you are God's and All of your children of the most high, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations, or all nations. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, what a silly little psalm. Well, Jesus didn't think it was a silly little psalm. He, in fact, quoted it in John chapter 10 when they called him the son of God. He's saying, wait a minute, you're okay (laughs) with judges being called gods? And he quotes that verse right there. And yet you're upset when they call me the son of God. He says it in John 10. One of the things that God wants us to know or our judges to know is that you can be all high and powerful and mighty, but remember, you die just like anyone. And you're going to face the judge, the ultimate judge. He's saying to the judges, but he's also saying to you and I. (laughs) Wherever God has put you in life, socioeconomically or otherwise, we're all going to meet our Maker, unless we go to be with Him first in the clouds. But that is one reality. A hundred out of a hundred percent of us, absent the rapture, are going to die. We need to be ready for that, and so thankful that. We have a perfect judge and a perfect savior so that we could be with him forever. And what's really fascinating about this is: arise, O God, judge the earth, you shall inherit all nations. So he gives this here at the end a powerful picture of who God is, the nations. And yet he's concerned about the little magistrate over across the way in Elizabeth the one in Pleasant Hills, who Jan knows really well. (laughs) I couldn't resist. (laughs) Psalm 83. Now this is an interesting psalm. As you'll see, uh, there's some sort of ten-nation confederation that's coming against Israel. Does that sound familiar in the prophetic times? Well, you know, it's always been that the enemy of our souls has used the enemies of God, here humanly, to oppose Israel. And here's no exception. Here's no exception. And in fact, several people, several commentators, equate this chapter with one of the great chapters of the Bible. You, you people who love... We, or I shouldn't say you people, all of us who love praise, love this chapter. It's Second Chronicles 20, and King Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And the enemies of Judah surround them all on all sides. Do you remember that? And Jehoshaphat gets a prophecy, and God, through the prophet, says to Jehoshaphat, can you imagine being the leader of this one when you're surrounded on all sides? I want you to go out to the battlefield, and here's what I want you to do. You'd be right on the edge of your seat. Uh, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to just stand still. And I want you to wait for the salvation of the Lord. And then what does God instruct Jehoshaphat to do? He he says, hey, uh, can you imagine if you're the leader and God tells you this? Call up the singers to the front lines. Call up the chorus. And they have the praise and worship, and they come and they... They can't believe it. The enemies can't believe it. And there's ambushes, and they're saved. That's what many equate this, um, this psalm with and the, uh, the, the topic of it. But again, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it's going to be the last one here in the series of psalms of Asaph. That was psalms 50, and then 73 through 83 psalms of Asaph. Don't keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and don't be still, O God. Right? Wouldn't you be saying that? Lord, this is no time to be quiet or to just sit still. We need you. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up your head. They've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. And in the King James Version, I believe, Sam... Sam and I were just talking. She just bought a new King James Version. But anyway, in the King James Version, I think the way in which they say that there is they're not sheltered ones, they're hidden ones. Which is fascinating because the people of God are called hidden ones. And don't you know in Colossians 2, don't you love this? Isn't this a great promise to hold on to when the winds are blowing and howling and the enemies are at the gate and you don't know where to turn and you're just stressed and you... Your life, your life, the reality of your spiritual life, Colossians 2 tells us, is that you're hidden in Christ. That's cool. What a promise. What a way to believe and think about your relationship with Christ. You're hidden in Christ. You're a sheltered one. You're a hidden one, just like these ones are. Now, that's fascinating that if this is about Second Chronicles 20... Can you imagine? In terms of military strategy, you're the most exposed one ever. You ever been to uh, Gettysburg? If you read about Gettysburg and you've never been there, you're like, how in the world can all these people get killed? Little Round Top, Big Round Top, how, how can you? And then what you do is you go to to the terrain and you walk out there and you go, ah, those poor people. They were like sitting ducks getting mowed down. That's what this would have been like militarily. They were exposed and vulnerable and everybody was around them. And yet the Lord says in that time, they're still the sheltered ones. They are the sheltered ones. We're hidden in Christ. And they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. Again, that hasn't changed today. I mean... The enemies of God, or excuse me, enemies of uh, Israel, even today, have said, and they do say, that their goal is to knock Israel into the ocean and destroy it. And it's never changed. You go to the 40s and the atrocities that happened then, and all throughout history, and all throughout the Bible, it's to cut them off from being a nation. Why? Why would the enemy of God before Jesus be excited to get the Jews eradicated because the Messiah was coming through them. So before Jesus was born, of course. But what about after? Now that we live on this side of the cross, well, there's this thing called the second coming. And so the enemy's still mad and wants to disrupt that and stop it. But praise be to God that our victory is assured So they want to cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have uh, consulted together with one consent. They form a uh, confederacy against you. Now here you go. A ten-nation confederation that set themselves up against Israel. And you find the first ones, the tents of Edom. By the way, if you wanted to just do a Bible study and help and grow... Uh, Your spiritual life, if you wanted to do that, you would take these 10. I'm going to give you a little bit about them and find out who they were and make them straight in your mind. And guess what's going to happen to the Old Testament? It's going to click more. And here's why. For the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. And then it says, pause and think about it. So let's do think about it. Who is Edom? Well, it's a descendant of Esau, who's the brother of Jacob. Now, it's funny about this to me and maybe to you. When I look down and I see the Philistines and the Assyrians, I go, well, yeah, of course, Philistines, Assyrians, I mean big-time enemies, the big ones, the biggies. But then you get to some of these, and you go, wow, and I understand that Esau and Jacob warred all that time, but think about it. They were brothers. I was going to say at one time, they were always brothers, but, you know, they were brothers. Jacob, of course, the father of the 12 tribes, Esau went, went out his way. Ishmaelites... Ishmael, the brother of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. You see what I'm saying? They're linked to the people of God, even though they became enemies. Hagrites. Some people believe this is Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarah, wife of Abram. I don't know about that one. I do know this they were a tribe over near Jordan. There were tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh fought at the time of the Jewish conquest of Palestine, all right. Gebal, not too much is known of them. Amon, Lot's younger daughter, got him drunk, and had offspring with Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Uh, Amalek, sons of Esau. And you just go down there and it's sad because here's what's interesting about it, you got the big enemies, but then you got these ones who are at once, at one time, sort of linked to the family of God, and you go, well, wait a minute. It's sort of the way we treat each other today. I mean, there are people who are related, and we find ourselves warring against other people of God. Because, you know, they wear suits when they worship, and they sing hymns but you wear a t-shirt and you play a guitar and so I'm not going to like you and come into your church or maybe you have a different eschatological view of course I have strong views on that and yet we love people who are brothers and sisters in the Lord anyway I think you're getting my point There was a confederacy that fought here and it got around them and it was serious. And then Asaph comes in and starts praying. Do you see that? And I want you to see how he prays. Hallisby should have used this in his book, Prayer by O. Hallisby. He should have used this. This is what Hallisby talks about in his book. And the first thing that Asaph does is he just says, Okay, based on how you've acted in the past, Lord, do it again. What do I mean? Well, deal with them as with Midian. Remember God's victory over Midian? Described in the Judges 6, 7, and 8. In fact, we got in a big debate on the Israel trip. It was so much fun. I love to make people think, And uh, when Gideon was choosing his men to go fight against the Midianites, we were at that spring. And the way in which, just go back and read this account of how they lap up the water, and you come back and tell me which ones he picked. And if you do, you're a genius. Because I've read it 150 times, and I can't figure it out. But maybe you can. But anyway, so we got into that debate uh, there. Uh, But the point being here is... That Asaph says, well, remember how you worked in Midian when you took just 300 people who some say were the oldest and the sickliest of the bunch and you defeated the Midianites? Do that again, Lord. And then as with Sisera, this is one of the Bible stories. I used to read to my kids a lot. (laughs) I love this story. And this talks about God's victory over the Canaanite king Jabin and his general Sisera. It's found in Judges 4 through a very, very, very strong and wonderful and biblical and beautiful Judge Deborah. And this guy named Barak, which means lightning. And it's described in Judges 4. And what they ultimately do is they put a tent peg through Sisera's forehead or temple. And so he's saying, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who uh, perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb in Gideon's victory. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. And you could read about that in Judges 7 again, the Midianites who said this, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. People are coming against what's God's. And this is the, the prayer and response. Now you go, well, how does that apply to my life? Because I'm going to tell you something. He wants to take you out. You belong to God. You were bought with a price. You think sometimes, at least I do, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. We just sort of get along with the day and we do our day and we're the ones in charge. But you were bought with a price. You're no longer your own. That's what the Bible says is true of you. And the enemy wants to take you out. And so these, the enemy says, let's take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. And he, wants to, he knows he can't possess you. So what he wants to do is just wreck you and wreck your testimony and wreck your mission And so it becomes important how to pray. And here he goes on and he prays in a different way. Oh, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burn the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire? So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame. And the Lord can do that. You could look up Psalm 9, 4, Habakkuk 3, 7, and see how he pursues the enemies. And then again, here comes another form of the prayer. And this really, I think, is one of the most, or maybe the most important part of the prayer. That they may seek your name, O Lord. Now he's gotten from the precatory, imprecatory part of the prayer, like, you know, nail them, wreck them, to, Lord, work in their hearts that they may seek your name. (laughs) By the way, folks, That's the ultimate purpose of prayer. If you want to know what the ultimate purpose of prayer is, turn with me to John 14, verse 13. We focus on the beginning of this prayer because we like to have whatever we ask for. Lord, make my ministry really, really big, Lord, and get me on TV, and maybe my book sales could go you know, top 10 New York Times and maybe some of my podcasts. Whew! it'd be amazing. And then you could spread our name across the world, Lord. Let's let's do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because it says here, and whatever you ask in my name, watch this, that I will do. Here, Here it comes. The back half of this is the ultimate purpose for prayer. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever your prayers are that are asked that are prayed for the ultimate glory of God the Father through the Son Jesus Christ those are answered. The problem is sometimes we ask amiss or we don't ask at all. Remember that story from O. Hallisby's book about the greatest prayer man he ever knew over in an old Norwegian village and every prayer uh, he, he would excuse me uh, he would see hundreds and hundreds of healings in this little village through this man who had this prayer ministry, and the man would receive letters from all around Norway and even farther, and he would pray through those prayers and people reported healings upon healings upon healings and Halsby finally went and uh, met with him or watched him do his prayer work, and he was shocked at the first prayer he he said it was a lovely prayer. But the prayer was at the end, do this only, Lord, if it brings you glory. And what Hallisby is saying there, which counteracts all the health and wealth prosperity doctrine people, is that he would tag this on here because that's the ultimate purpose in prayer, that he would be glorified. But if you pray that prayer in some circles here in Christendom, they say, ah, lack of faith. You don't really believe what you're praying. And yet, the Bible says that that's the ultimate purpose in prayer, that God would be glorified in this. And here, back in this psalm, you sort of see that, that they may seek your name, your character, that you would be glorified, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. That's what's important in prayer you say well wait a minute I have needs and wants and desires well those are all good too and he says pray those but those are a a thing that can he can give to you so that you could be a channel do you get this your life is way bigger than just the promotion or the bonus or the great house or the white picket fence or whatever you love it's bigger than that. Maybe he gives those to you so there could be more glory for him than that more people would be pointed to him. Because when he comes back as a judge, it's going to be bad for those who don't know him. And he wants as many people as possible to go into the kingdom. And he wants to use you. And so, for his glory. Now, here we have this beautiful psalm and psalm... 84, which is the blessings of dwelling in the house of God. Now, what happened here is for some reason, do do you remember this? That the families of God would have to go up to Jerusalem, up to the temple three times a year during the three major feasts. And apparently this family or this guy wasn't able to go once. That's what it seems to be. And yet, He talks about how important it is. And I want you to remember something here as you read through this psalm. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. Remember, Korah was instrumental in the rebellion against Moses, and there was an earthquake, and people were swallowed up, including Korah. So every time you read the sons of Korah, I want you to think grace and mercy of God because you would think Like, think about it. If you were in charge of something and somebody rebelled against you and threatened your authority and you had to wipe them out or, you know, fire them or whatever, would you really let their family come in and work in your organization? Well, God did. He said, okay, that was them. But you know what? The sons of Korah, you're going to be people who work in the temple areas, in the music ministry. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Wow. So here's what they write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Now remember for us in 1 Corinthians 6, in the New Testament, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And it was lovely. And for us, yes, you're out there. Your outer person can be beautiful, it can. But listen, here's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to create this inner, holy, wonderful, merciful, gentle, strong, powerful beauty of holiness in your life. So that when people come, yes, they might smell the aroma of Christ as death, but they'll see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That's what he wants to do. And so when people come around, don't you want them to say when they leave, even if they don't understand or know, hmm, wow. The way in which that person was kind and loving and sweet and yet told me the truth. I've never encountered anything like that. See, that's because that's the way Jesus was and is. He could tell people hard truths Man, you've had all these husbands, and you're trying to have another. He said to the woman at the well. He told her truth about sins and about being forgiven, and yet he met with her, and he, you know, took the drink from her and all that sort of thing, and he, you know, had community with her and friendship. Powerful, man. And the Lord wants to do that in your life so that people will say, how lovely is that one? My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Here, this person didn't get to go, but he wanted to be in the courts of the Lord. Why? Because they were getting closer and closer in that time to what? The presence of the Lord. The Shabbat, the Kabad, the the weightiness, the heaviness, which was found in the Holy of Holies. You get that? In fact, even today, it's fascinating. When you go to Jerusalem, you can go in the tunnels underneath the Temple Mount. And the Jewish people go in the tunnels. This was when Netanyahu did this in the night, late 90s, I think, early 2000s. When he did this, all you know what broke loose. He opened up those tunnels under the west, uh, right near the Western Wall. You can go back in there. And what happens is the people, the Jewish people, go to where they think the closest spot was to the Holy of Holies. So they can't go up there and do that. So they do it underneath and they pray up there. I mean to to a Jewish person reading, my soul longs, yes even faints for the courts of the Lord. I mean you see that even today and yet there's to be a weightiness with us, not just fluff. You get it? The beauty of the Lord, the substance of the Lord, the Lord Himself in and through you, just pulsing in and through you. It just doesn't always have to be about stealers and f- sports and music and Netflix and Instagram and da 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 I mean, it can be. But then to a higher and a more weighty purpose, that's what the soul longs for. People are longing for it. If you didn't see that Monday night, you'll never see it. I couldn't believe it. Well, first of all, the young man falling, that was just awful and horrendous. But to see people coming together and stopping on a national scale and sitting and praying, to see sports announcers praying on national TV. Did you think on Sunday evening you'd ever see an ESPN sports broadcaster say an actual prayer using the name of Jesus? Did you ever think that would happen? I never thought that would happen. And the Lord can do it. And what what it shows you is that even people on the margins, when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, when mortality comes, they run to God. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's what this man was doing. That's where joy is found is with the living God, not just God, but our God is alive, and that's powerful. And even the sparrow has a a home. See, that's really cool. Even the man or the woman or the boy or the girl who feels totally and completely insignificant, and maybe out in the world, which is cruddy, treats people that way, but when they come to the people of God, to the family of God, they're not insignificant. They're highly significant. That's why I hate it when people sit alone. And I know some of you want to sit alone. (laughs) Don't let anybody sit alone or don't let anybody go without saying being said hi to for the day. Don't let anybody go without having their hand shook or even at least asking if they could you could sit with them. You know, of course, they could tell you no, but. But nobody is insignificant. where she may lay her young. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Isn't that a real curious and peculiar thing to write about the temple? Nobody's insignificant. Where she may lay her young. Even your altars are Lord of hosts. And then it says, my king and my God. And I I want you to circle that and just think about it. God, God. Gives himself to you. <laughs> you ever thought about that? God gives himself to you, to me, so that we can say, my. Jan can say, my. I can say, my. Grant can say, my. And just right around the room, we can say, my king. He is our king, but he's my king too. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They s- will still be praising you. Think about it. Pause. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. And in the time that this is being written, whose hearts are set on the highways up to Zion, up to the Temple Mount. But our hearts are set on a different pilgrimage, the city of God. Oh my goodness, the city of God. I want you to think about something right now. Right now, I want you to think, what is the one thing that's just pressing you most right now? Think about it. Don't tell me what it is. And then I want you to think about yourself as a pilgrim. You're just marching through this wetland. You're just going through. You're an alien. You're going to heaven. And you're going to be there with the Lord forever. Now, of course, we want to be responsible and deal with whatever that issue is and do it in a godly way by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is just for a time and a very short time compared to where where we're going and what we're about ready to do. As they pass through the valley of Baca, and this means weeping, you know this. What's fascinating about this is Baca is nowhere identified in Scripture. But Baca is a Hebrew word that means balsam tree and the sap of this tree oozes tears, things that look like tears. So the Valley of Baca is a phrase that speaks of any difficulty and painful place in life or even a a desert place or a dry place. Anybody here in a painful, dry maybe, deserted place or you're hurting or whatever, well, you're going through the Valley of Baca. But look what the Lord does. As you pass through the valley of Baca, on the other side is a spring. Or inside it even, the rain also covers it with pools. And they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says about this verse. I love it. The people who love God expect to pass through this valley and not remain there. They get a blessing from the experience, and they leave a blessing behind. Want me to read that again? You talk about purpose in your pain. They get a blessing from the experience, and they leave a blessing behind. The Valley of Baca. And that can, thats can be. People can go through this valley, but on the other side, or even in through it, is rain and refreshment, And strength and life. And God wants to do something amazing through the Valley of Baca. Oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Hear what prayer? Make me this kind of man. What kind of man? Verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in you. Because what happens when you get in the Valley of Baca? You just say, okay, enough of me, more of you. Make me this kind of man. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. If you just bless me in this way, look my way. Wow, my strength would be impressive, but because it would be because of you. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. You know, as we were singing that today, <laughs> well, it does it sort of come back to the sports. But that's all I know. I guess. And I have to even say it comes from our most hated rival. The coach of the team that I can't name always says, no, not the Steelers. The coach always says, who's got it better than us? And I think so. Of course, there's pain and struggle, and you're going to be hated for your faith, and there's going to be tribulations and trials that you didn't even ask for because God wants you to be Christ-like. But a day in your courts is better than a thousand. Life with God is better than anything else. That's what that's saying right there. It's better than a house It's better than a car. It's better than a full bank account. It's better than popularity. It's better than image. Life with God, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ is better than anything else ever could be. I'd rather even be an usher or a doorkeeper in the house of my God. My friend Floyd from Baltimore, he texts me that almost every week because he's an usher at his church. But I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. In other words, whatever I need, God is. The Lord will give grace and glory. Isn't that beautiful? Grace. We think of grace, although I don't think it's wimpy, but it's gentle and uh, elegant and tactful and careful and beautiful. But then you think of Glory, Powerful and weight and heavy. It's heavy, man. The Lord will give grace and glory. He gives substance to his people, but also gentleness and beauty. The Lord gives that, but no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I wonder if we really believe that. He doesn't withhold any good thing from you. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And I would add and think everywhere at all times, that's who a blessed man or woman is. Psalm 85. This came as a result of the captivity ending and the people going back from Babylon back home. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. But do you remember uh, what David, uh, I believe it's David, yeah. David in Psalm 32 wrote, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. For a person to have their sins forgiven, it's so freeing. And here is a nation, the Lord, letting them come back into their land. You've taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. And wow. I I hope that uh, if you have a pen or a notepad or if you you use your phone or whatever, I mean, here are some prayers to pray for 2023. Pray for our elected officials, the judges. If you don't know the judges, go on the Allegheny County website. Listen, no offense, but they need prayer, man. (laughs) I need prayer too, but... They need, (laughs) I hope they're not listening. But anyway, (laughs) and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's Psalm 83. How does it apply to you? For your prayers for 2023. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The enemy of our souls still hates the nation of Israel. Hates the people. And if you're looking for prayers in 2023, Lord, that you would make my inner person, my inner man, my inner woman, that you would fill me with your beauty and love and chip off all the pointed, rough edges that are ungodly, the gossip and the complaining and the unfaithfulness. And if it's, uh, you know, looking at bad stuff, uh, lusting in my heart, whatever, Lord. Just, Lord, create a lovely tabernacle that looks like you. That's your prayer from Psalm 84. Now, as you come here, the prayer of thanksgiving, Lord, you've forgiven our, or my sins. And, Lord, our nation is a mess and we pray for the sins of our nation because Lord, here's, here's what I'm getting at, revival. Lord, would you pour out your spirit at least, at least one more time before you come again? And it takes people who don't gloss over sin. It just takes men and women to quit saying and making up excuses for why things happen and just saying in our own lives, that's a sin and I'm wrong. And I've sinned against you, Lord, and my country is sinning. Forgive us, Lord, and to be on our knees in prayer. Oh, Lord, would you revive us so that we could rejoice and show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse 7, I'll hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. Here's another prayer, but let them not turn back to folly. You know, when there's one victory in the Christian life, the enemy is trying to turn you back and to have you move back. But Lord, I don't want to return to that folly. Help me, Lord, on the path to continuation or continuing uh, down the path of Christ-likeness. I don't want to turn back to folly. I don't want our nation to turn back to folly. Help us here, Lord. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Substance. His power. His presence. And here, this is so beautiful. I'll let you be a Berean this week. Mercy and truth collide in God's economy. In who? In Christ. Mercy and truth. Righteousness and peace. Remember, He's both the just one and the justifier. And if you think that through, that's where these things meet. His righteousness, but also his peace. They have come together in only one, Christ, and kissed. Romans 3.26, I think, is just and justifier. Truth shall spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our Lord will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. A prayer of David now in Psalm 86. And it's just a beautiful prayer. It's glorious, folks. Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I'm poor and needy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus said. David knew this principle. I'm poor and needy, and yet he could say, watch this. This is why you come on a Wednesday night. This is why you drive from Greensburg. It's right here. This is it. It's not because I have to or I'm obliged to or I have an obligation. You know why it is? It's a love response, and here's where I think you see it, because he says, I'm poor and needy. I'm spiritually bankrupt, and yet... David could say, I'm holy. What? And yes, that's it. You have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And yet you knew you were spiritually bankrupt and needed a savior. So practically, you know you're poor and needy. But positionally, you know you're righteous before God because of the blood of Jesus. It's the reason I get up in the morning and so do you. Right there in Psalm 80. 6. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord. That's Adonai right there. And Amy Grant didn't coin that phrase. That's actually, whoever laughed is probably my age because not many people know that song anymore. But anyway, Adonai, master, absolute Lord of my life. For I cry to you all day long, rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Wow, you're finding out about the character, the heart of God right here. And abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Mercy, having with, uh, withholding what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is withholding what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And he's abundant in this mercy. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Same as verse 1, bow down your ear. And attend to the voice of my supplications. I need supply. That's what David's saying. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you will answer me. He really does answer, folks. Prayer recognizes when you are a praying person, you recognize that god really truly helps among the gods there is none like you o lord you're unique nor are there any works like your weeks, works like all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you o lord and shall glorify your name for you are great and do wondrous things wondrous things can anybody testify to that in here has god done wondrous things in your life yes You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. Isn't that amazing? Just think about that. Teach me your way, O Lord. One guy, David. I mean, I know he was an important guy, but one guy. The same God who rules over the nations and will judge all the nations teaches one person, and that's you and me. That's powerful. And then do this for me. You want, you want a great prayer for 2023 as we pray for revival? Pray this one. Here's another one. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, here's the prayer. Lord, help me to have no divided loyalties. Make me a one-string guitar, Lord. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy. That's the brilliant and lovely and tremendous and powerful word, Hassed. For great is your hased toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You, you've delivered me out of the lowest hell, Lord. That's what David said, and I bet you could... I bet that resonates with us, too. O God, the proud have risen against me and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I have no idea on what occasion David prayed this prayer. And I'm sort of glad for it because it's just such a beautiful prayer that you could pray any day, every day, all the time. And what I would say is, as we've gone through Psalms 82 through 86 tonight, almost getting to book, you know, a next book in the Psalms better get going i would say this wouldn't you want revival in this year and you know we say it like it's some mythical thing that could never happen we kind of believe in it but don't really but we could the lord will pour out his spirit i think before he comes but you know he could come at any time i recognize that but if he was going to do it it would take this at least this Hearts that mourn over their own sin. Quit pointing the finger at everybody else. Come on. Of course, you know, there's a time and a place for that some ways. But what about what the Lord's doing in your heart? And to mourn over it, not gloss over it. To see that we're sinning against God, not against people all the time, but against God. And that we would get on our knees and pray together. And that the Lord's spirit would be poured out. And what if he did it right up and down this river, the Monongahela River, and people were coming to Christ and bars were being closed and drugs were being dried up. What if that happened? And it could happen, I'm convinced. And it could just with, you know, it just takes men and women, just a few of us, just to come together. And to have the Lord hit us that way. And here you see many of the prayers that we would pray if this were to happen. Our Lord is a missional God. He sends. He sent his son. He sends his disciples. That means we're on mission. There's not some, don't take this the wrong way. There's not like some evangelistic arm of the church that should do the evangelism. The church should do the evangelism because that's who we are, because that's who God is. And it takes authentic, real, Holy Spirit-driven love and compassion and perseverance with open doors by the Lord. And I believe he could do it. And I think you do too. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come together and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people of prayer and praise this year. Lord, almost every pastor who've written a biography, they've asked, what's your one regret? Almost all of them said they'd pray more. Lord, help us to take the time to be devoted to you in the mornings and the evenings. Help us with our families. Lord, let us take... Change, er, Turn off the TV or the other distractions, the phones, and seek your face, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name.